You know, they say that the two most important days of a person's life is the day that they're born and the day they find out why. Now, I'm pretty sure everybody in this room knows the day that they were born, amen? Right, August 31st, 1985. And so if you, that's the day I was born, if you ever just want to give me something, a nice Chili's gift card on August 31st would be amazing. That was the day that I was born, and that's a very important day. The day that you were born is a very important day. That's why people that you love celebrate it every single year. But that's not the most important day of your life. The most important day of your life is the day that you find out why. A lot of people know when they were born, but they don't actually know why they were born. How many of you have ever struggled with that question? What is my meaning for life? What is the purpose of life? What is God's will for my life? What on earth am I here for? You ever asked that question? As a pastor, I get asked that question by people all the time. They want to know, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? What is God's plan? What are his purposes? Why did God create me? That's a great question, and it's a very important question, and it's a question that we are going to answer today as we study the life of David. And, and here's, here's the big idea that's going to guide this message today. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. When you find your why, you will find your way. In each and every season or circumstance or place that we find ourselves in our lives, we oftentimes try to figure out what it is that we are supposed to do, how we can thrive, how we can flourish, how we can make the best of any moment or any opportunity, wherever we're at or whatever the circumstances may be. We're looking to try to find our way, but the way that you find your way is by first discovering your why. Why on earth am I here? And when you find your why, you're going to be able to find your way. And we're going to look at that today through the life of David. In David's life so far, we've seen him in a variety of different situations or in circumstances. When we first met David, he was a little boy. He was a shepherd out in the fields when the prophet came and anointed him with oil and declared him to be the future king of the nation of Israel. We've seen him go back to the fields. We've seen him in the palace. We've seen him on the front lines of battle. We've seen him run for his life, hiding in caves. We've seen him dodging spears. We've seen him as a shepherd, and we've seen him as a king. And in each and every situation of his life, the way that he honored God, the way that he served God changed. And for you, in each situation and in each circumstance, in each season or age that you find yourself in, the way that you serve God, the way that you honor God, the way that you please God, it's going to change. But the why never changes. See, if you struggle with the question, what is God's purpose or will for my life? It's a trick question because what most people don't recognize is God actually has two wills for your life. Did you know that? There is a general will that God has, but at the same time, there is a specific will. There is a general will that is what God wants for everybody. The same way that me as a father, I have a general will for my family and a general will for my little girls. I want them to grow up, and I want them to be able to make a difference in the world. I want them to love God, and I, I want for them to flourish and to be happy. There's a, a general will, but I recognize that each one of my daughters is different, and they're going to have a different path that they have to journey through in life. Every single one of us, God is a father. He has a general will for all of us, or he has a why for all of us, but each one of us has a specific will. We have a different way. We all have the same why, but we all have different ways. The way that you honor God whenever you're in high school is going to be different than whenever you're in college. The way that you honor God in college is going to be different than whenever you're a parent. The way that you honor God when you're a single is different than whenever you are a grandparent. The way that you honor God today is going to look different than the way that you honor God in 20 years. There is different individual specific ways that we serve God, but there is one why behind it all. And when you find that why, you are going to find your way. And today we're going to discover the why that we all have in common. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Normally, this is where I reveal the sermon title to you, but I'm going to hold on for just a little bit because I want to set up the tension, even though it's on the top of your notes, okay? 
those who are watching online, they don't have notes, so they don't know. So I'm going to go ahead and read the whole section up front, and then I want to be able to reveal the why. Here's what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 11. And the ark of the Lord, very important, circle it, underline it, highlight it. We're going to come back to it because that's really going to set up the text for us. It talks about the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. We're going to come back to that. And it was told to King David. The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with what? With rejoicing. So they're very excited about whatever's going on. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And then David, he danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and the house of Israel, they brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting. Let me hear you. Woo! There we go. With the sound of the horn. And the ark of the Lord came to the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. She became critical and judgmental and she despised her husband in her heart and they brought the ark of the lord and they set its place inside the tent david had pitched for it and david offered burnt offerings peace offerings before the lord and when david had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings he blessed the people in the name of the lord of hosts and he distributed among the people the whole multitude of israel both men and women a cake of bread a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one then all the people departed, each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today. That's sarcasm, if you can't read. That's, uh, that's sarcasm. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, and as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So she's laying into him. She's nagging him, criticizing him. She's tearing into him. And then David, he said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me to be the prince of Israel and the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. David, clapping back on her. I will make myself yet more contemptible to this and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, I love being able to teach the Bible. It's actually one of my favorite things. It's a great privilege, and it is an honor for me to be able to teach the Bible. But before we dive into this message, I have to take a step back, and I have to set up the context so that way we're better able to understand it. Because some of you, you read that line right there, and you say, the Ark of the Lord? What is that? Is that like from Indiana Jones? The Ark of the Covenant, well, before it was a movie, it was in the Bible. And let me tell you, the book is always better than the movie, amen? amen. You say, what is the Ark of the Lord? Because when you read this, on the surface, this story sounds a little bit crazy. Like David, he's now the king of Israel. He goes and he grabs the Ark of the Lord. He brings it back to the city of David, and he gets down naked, and everybody's dancing and singing. His wife gets real mad. She criticizes him. He claps back, and she never has another kid. Like, when you read it on the surface, you're like, this is kind of a wild story. But it's because you don't understand the context. And if you want to be able to understand the text, then what do you have to do? You have to be able to understand the context that the text is in. So let me set up some context for you. The Ark of the Lord. Here's what that is. It is the manifest presence of God that dwells and inhabits amongst his people. You see, God's plan ever since the book of Genesis is that he would be our God and that we would be his people and that we would spend our lives in his presence. Don't believe me? In Genesis, at the very beginning, it says that Adam and Eve, they knew God and they walked with him through the cool of the garden. That God created us to, to be in his presence. And what God desires most is for us 
to be in his presence, but he loves to be in our presence as well, just like any father loves to be in the presence of his kids. But because Adam and Eve, they sinned, they fell, they rebelled, they separated themselves from God, and now sin can no longer come into the presence of holiness, and so they were not able to be permanently in the presence of God. And that story goes on for thousands of years until Moses. When God raised up the prophet Moses, delivered them from Israel, as they're wandering through the promised land, God comes back and he says to them, I will be your God and you will not be a people and I will dwell among you. And so he led them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and they built what would become the, the Ark of the Covenant that the manifest presence, the very living presence of God would be able to dwell amongst them in their midst because God desired to be in their presence. And then we see the ark of the Lord on the day that King David becomes the leader of the nation of Israel. The first thing that David does, because he is a man after the very heart of God, what is the first thing that David says? We need to get God's presence in the middle of his people. It's the very first thing that God, that David said. See, what we learn also earlier in the book of First Chronicles is this, is that while Saul was king, he never sought the ark of the presence of God. There's two kings that we've been studying. We've been studying the king Saul, and his life was devoid of the presence of God. And then we study King David, who was a man after the very heart of God. Saul never sought the presence of God. David said, above all else, the first thing that I want, the first thing that I need, the very important thing is that I get God's presence in my life and God's presence amongst the middle of my people. It's always been about the presence of God. And this is how the story of the Bible unfolds, that God desires to be amongst his people. And he reveals himself in the old covenant through the ark. And so now some of you are wondering, okay, well, Byron, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with me? I mean, that's like 3,000 years ago. That's Old Testament. They're like killing bulls and making sacrifices and ox every six steps. The ark of the Lord comes into the middle of the city of Jerusalem. So are you telling me that in order for me to, 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 to be in the presence of God, then here's what I have to do. I have to kill a calf and kill a bull. I have to journey to Jerusalem and be like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I got to find this thing to find God. Okay, that's actually not what it's, it's, it's talking about. See, that's what would be called the historical redemptive view. I, I've told you throughout this study that there's two ways in which we interpret uh, a narrative, right? There's the historical redemptive, and then there's the historical ethical. Now, here's the historical redemptive. The redemption is this, is that Jesus has now become our ark. That Jesus is the manifest presence of God in our lives. John 1 says this, that the word became flesh and the word manifested himself. In the, in the Greek, that word is to tabernacle. That means that Jesus becomes the tabernacle. Jesus becomes the ark of the covenant. And now Jesus is the ark. And so we have Jesus, the presence of God, through the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, residing on the inside of us. And so we don't need an ark. All we need is Jesus. The historical redemptive goes on, says we don't have to make sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus is the greater sacrifice. That his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That one man died for all creation. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, we now have redemption of our sins. We don't need priests because there is only one priest. His name is Jesus, the great high priest. There is one mediator between God and man. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we don't need kings because there is only one king who is high and exalted who rules and reigns both now and forevermore, and his name is Jesus. And so we can have the presence of God with us anywhere and everywhere that we are at. That is the historical redemptive. So you say, well, Byron, what does that mean for me? Here's what it means, the redemptive ethical. If you're taking notes, write this down. What we learn from David is this, is the presence of God is the purpose of our lives. What is the meaning of life? To spend time in the presence of God. What is the value of life? To spend time in the presence of God. What is God's will for my life? That you would spend time with him. It's the presence of God that is the purpose of our lives. When you know who he is, you will know what to do. When you know, when you know who he is, you know who you are, and you'll know how to live. When you know who he is, you'll know how to live the rest of your life. The presence of God is the purpose for our lives. To spend time in the presence of God. To glory 
glory into the presence of God, to enjoy the presence of God, because God delights to inhabit the praises of his people. And as we enjoy him, as we worship him, as we glory in him, as we spend time in his presence, he will reveal his perfect will for your life. The presence of God is the purpose for your life. We see this when Jesus is first introduced. The first words when Jesus comes on the scene, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why? Because God desires to be with you. The question is, do you desire to be with him? David desired more than anything else to what? To spend time in the presence of God. David said, I need God more than anything else. If I want to be able to move forward, I need God. If I want to achieve God's plan for my life, I need God's presence in my life. I need God more than anything else. As a deer pants for water, so my soul is thirst for you. I need the presence of God in my life. And so he goes and he brings the presence of God in the middle of the congregation of Israel. Which goes to show that this verse is actually a verse about worship. It's a text about what it means for us to worship him. The way you honor, love, bless, serve God, it changes over time. But why never changes. What is the why of our lives? The why of our lives is to worship him. That's the why. That's why you were made. That's why God created you. That's the why of your life. It's just spend time with God through worshiping and glorifying him. This is a text that teaches us the why behind our worship. And so some of you, you might come into redemption and you, you might look at the way that we worship and you might think that's a little different. That's a little unique. These people get really excited and know people can get excited about church. Some of y'all, you're like, wow, these people really like this place. That's right. Because you didn't grow up in a church where you like having church or like going to church. You didn't know that church could be fun. But I want you to know that we actually really enjoy going to church. And we really enjoy worshiping God. If you've never been to church before and you walk in for the first time, it could be a little confusing. You're like, why are all these people raising their hands? Do they all have a question? <laughs> is, is the pastor fixing to call on somebody? I keep hearing people say, Amen. Amen. What is a man? You're like, what, what is a man? I don't know. What is a man? What is a woman? I don't know. Like, ask a politician. Different word. Amen means let it be. Let it be. And people say, hallelujah. You know what that is? We're speaking, we're speaking Hebrew, which means praise the Lord. And you might come into church and you're like, this is so strange. Why are people doing this? They get really excited. Why are people so passionate when it comes to their worship? I mean, look at what David's doing. He's dancing. He's singing. He's clapping. They're playing instruments. I mean, he looks very passionate when it comes to displaying his worship before God. And here's the reason why we worship the way that we do. Because worship equals work. That's what worship is. You might be wondering, what is worship? Here's what it is. It's, it's worth. It's whatever you deem as most valuable, most precious, and worthy in your life. Whatever is worthy in your life, I can guarantee you, that's what it is that you give worship to. And for us at Redemption, the reason that we get so passionate about worship is because we know that there is nothing and no one that is more worthy than Jesus. That he alone is worthy. That he alone is powerful. That he alone is mighty. That he alone saves. That glory and honor and praise it only and always and totally belongs to him we worship him because he is worthy and he is worthy of it all but some of you might be like well I just that's just not that's just not what I believe that's just not what I think well does that mean that I am not a worshiper not true because remember why we were created was to worship the opposite of worship isn't not worship the opposite of worship is idolatry 
See, you're worshiping someone or something. The question is, who or what are you worshiping? Because everybody worships something. You can't help it because that is the way that God made you, and that is the why behind your life, to worship. And so you're either going to worship God, who is worthy of all, or you're going to worship someone or something else. But everybody is a worshiper. What do you ascribe worship or worth to your life? That is whatever it is that you, you worship. Some people, they worship people. They worship their boyfriend, their girlfriend, they worship their boss, they worship other people's opinions over them, they worship whatever's trending on social media and whatever is popular or cultural of the day, they worship people. Some people worship possessions or, or money or wealth or status. That's why every time a new pair of Jordans come out, people are lined up all around the block. Or anytime a new iPhone comes out, it's the talk of the town. You sit there for three hours trying to get them to get a shipment into you because that is what you worship. Whatever it is that you're passionate about, that's what you attribute your worship to. I mean, I have seen grown men who like paint half of their body blue, the other half silver. They dress up like a cowboy. They drive to Dallas and they crown their beer every time their team loses. You worship the cowgirls. That's what you do. <laughs> or whenever, or whenever, like a little teenage girl goes to a, a Harry Styles concert and she cries. Ah, what is she doing? She is, she is worshiping. Every person who goes to a pride parade, they're worshiping. To them, sex is their god, and that is what their identity stems from. So therefore, that is a worshiping act. Every single one of us, we are worshipers. The question is not, will you worship? The question is, who or what will you give your worth to? And if you're here today, can I just tell you, there is nothing that will love you like Jesus. There is nothing that will change your life like Jesus. There is nothing that will give you hope, that will give you grace, that will give you peace, that will give you faithfulness. There is nothing that will transform you quite like worshiping Jesus. He alone is worthy. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is majestic. He is glorious. He is beautiful. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. By him, to him, for him, through him, all things were created. And in him we move and we have our beings. There is no one more worthy than Jesus. I feel like giving a praise break right now. Come on, somebody. Come on. That's my Jesus. He alone is worthy of worship. That is why we worship him. And so let me just break this down with some practical applications for us as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 11 through 23. Man, doesn't it just feel good to do what you were created to do? It just feels so good to worship him. So let me give you the, the why behind our worship. The first thing that we see is this. I want you to know is that you have permission to worship. Let's look at the text. Here's what it says. It says, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has honored himself today. Mm -hmm. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, the female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all the house to appoint me as the prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I will be abased in your eyes by the female servants of whom you have spoken. By them I shall be held in honor. Here it says that Michael is like, how dare you? How dare the king? You made yourself look so foolish. Everybody's looking at you. Everybody's laughing at you. I am disgusted by you. What was David doing? It says that he was dancing naked before God in front of all the people. What does that mean? Does that mean that whenever you come to church, you should take off all your clothes and start running around? No! Don't do that. We're call the cops on you. That's not what it's saying. In fact, it's not saying that David was actually naked at all. In fact, here's what we, we notice is this, is that David, he removed his royal robes and he dressed like a common person. That he was down, he wasn't up high and exalted, he humbled himself and he became just like the rest of the people who were in the crowd. Here's what David was doing. David was giving the people of Israel permission to worship the Lord. Because as the leader goes, the congregation goes. 
He was letting the church, he was letting the, the people know that they have permission to worship with freedom, to worship with joy, to worship with gladness, to worship with exuberance, and to worship with passion. He was modeling before Israel what genuine, true worship looks like. Redemption, I want you to know, as your pastor, I give you permission to worship God. That's the reason that all of our leaders are right here on the front row. Why? Because we lead by our example. We cannot lead people places that we're unwilling to go ourselves. And so if we want to create a culture of worship here, then we need to have people who lead and to implement that culture. As a, as a staff, whenever you come onto our team, we have a list of rules of redemption, leadership values that anyone who serves above a serve team member is expected and held accountable towards. And here's the first rule of leadership is that we lead from the front because you can't take people places you're not willing to go yourself. And so we have to be the change that we want to see. And so that's why every single week the leaders are on the front row worshiping, singing. Trevor's marching back and forth like he's about to go into battle, worshiping, praising the Lord. That's why you see me and Ashley up front, hands raised, singing out of tune, clapping off beat because we want to model for you what genuine, true worship actually looks like. And here, here's what I've discovered is that most people really do want to worship. Right? Some of y'all come from different backgrounds or different traditions, and so this may all seem new to you, but I, I, be, I bet that somewhere inside of your heart, you're just wanting to have the boldness, the courage, the confidence to just go from here to here. I know it. I know you do, because the moment you do it, I just see it. Once you learn how to do it, you're like, oh, this feels so good. And so you might start here, maybe like halfway through the song worship, you might end up here. Maybe by the end of the second song, you got the heartburn. And then by the end of the worship set, you're, you're just full on goalpost for Jesus. That's what it is. Touchdown, Jesus. But I want to I give you permission, and I want you to feel free to worship God. This week I asked on Instagram, I said, what is the number one reason that you believe that people are not expressive when it comes to their worship? And I got dozens of comments, but here's the number one thing. It's out of fear of what other people are going to think. I don't feel like I can be free in worship because, because what, if, what if someone sees me? What if they know what I'm going through? What if they know what I've done? What if they know my background? What if they, they know my story and I'm sitting here worshiping Jesus? I just don't feel worthy. Let me tell you, you're not. I know that's countercultural to everything you'll hear in society that says you are enough. You are worthy. You are perfect just the way that you are. Okay, that's unbiblical, by the way. Because the truth is, is none of us are worthy, and we're not here to worship you. We're not here to worship other people's opinions on you. You don't need to worry about what they're thinking, because all we worry about is him. Because maybe we're not worthy, but he is. And we're not worshiping him because we are worthy. We're worshiping him because he is worthy. So listen, stop worrying about what people think and start doing what pleases God. Stop worrying about the people around you. Stop worrying about what other people say and start doing what it is that pleases God. You say, but, but, but I just, I, I'm so scared to sing because I just don't sing very well. Okay, listen, this ain't, this ain't the, thank you, sister. This ain't American Idol. Right? You're like, but, but I don't sing well. Listen, I don't sing good either. But that ain't going to stop me. Like sometimes the, sometimes the worship band, I see them, they'll be over here on this side, and they'll have to walk over here on this side sometimes because I'll be singing so loud, clapping off beat out of tune. But listen, if, if God can interpret the tongues of angels and men, he can auto-tune your voice. He can correct that when you get to heaven, and you can say, I'm making a joyful noise before the Lord. Listen, stop worrying about what people think and start doing what pleases God. Redemption, I want you to know, you have permission to worship God. You have permission to sing, to clap, to dance, but please wear clothes. <laughs> Number two is there is power that is in your worship. Look what it says Right here it says this, and it, it was told to King David that the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. I just want to pause right here. This isn't one of my points, but I just want to give a word to men in the room. Do you want your family to be blessed? Men, you set the atmosphere of worship in your home. It says the whole household was blessed because of the presence of God. Men, you bring the presence of God into your house. 
Men, you set the example. Don't get out worshiped by a woman. No, you set the example. You lead by example. I love that the ladies love Jesus. It's easy for ladies to worship and to express themselves and to be a little emotional. But I think I speak on behalf of every woman in this room. They wish their man would get a little bit more emotional. Amen? They wish a man would show a little bit more passion, lead them in prayer, and set the atmosphere of the presence of God in their life. And all the ladies said? Amen. There we go. And all of his household was blessed. That's not even my note. That was for free. Here we go. Because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God to the house of Obed-Edom, to the city of David, with rejoicing. Wherever the presence of God goes, that's where the blessings of God follow. Wherever the presence of God goes, that's where the blessings of God follows. Do you want to experience the blessings of God for your life? Here's what you do. You worship him. Do you want to experience the, the goodness of God in your life? Here's what you do. You worship him. Do you want to experience the power of God in your life? Here's what you do. You worship him. Why? Because worship gives you access to a power that you don't possess. When you worship him, that's when breakthrough happens. When you worship him, that's when your spirits begin to lift. When you worship him, that's when the situation begins to change. When you worship him, that's when the walls begin to fall down and the giants begin to die. That's when the chains get broken. When you worship him, that's where power comes into your life. Because you're taking your eyes off your situation and you're putting them up on his sovereignty. Listen, stop telling your God how big your problems are and start telling your problems how big your God is. Because when you begin to worship him, it moves mountains. It builds up your faith. When you begin to worship him, things in your life, they begin to change. It happens when you worship him because there is a power wherever the presence of God goes, the blessing flows. Worship gives you access to a power that you don't possess. You say, well, that sounds, uh, how, how, do I, how, how do I know that? Well, we see it modeled in Jesus' life. And the temptation of Jesus, when Satan comes to him, brings him up to the top of the temple. And Satan says, I will give you everything in the land. Anything you see, it will be yours. And what does Jesus say? How does Jesus respond to him? It is said that, man, that we will worship God and God alone. And the devil fled from him. You want to see temptation flee in your life? Begin to worship God. You want to see overcoming sin in your life? Begin to, begin to worship God. You want to have victory in spiritual warfare? Begin to worship God in the middle of that situation. Even whenever it seems like all hope is lost and everything is dark and you don't have a way out of it, you worship your way out of it because there is power in your worship. We also see this happen in the New Testament when, when Paul and Silas, they're in prison. They've been beaten, flogged. They're sitting there in chains. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and they're in a prison cell. And Paul turns to Silas and says, you want to worship? Let's sing some praises. You say, well, they're in a prison. They might have been in a prison, but their heart was in heaven. And when they begin to worship, when they begin to sing, when they begin to cry out to God, what does it say? It says in Acts 16 that the chains were broken and the prison doors were wide open. You want to see breakthrough? You begin to worship him. It was the praise that brought the power. It was the worship that brought the power. Anywhere the presence of God is, the power of God will be in your life. Your worship has power. Number three is that your posture in worship, it matters. Do you know that your posture matters? Like some of y'all, you're new to redemption, and this might be your first week. You've been coming for a few months, and you're like, these people, oh, my goodness, what kind of church did I get myself into? I thought this was one of those cool churches. Listen, if, if, if you're going to be, mis you're, 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 no, you're disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. Listen, we ain't no cool church, okay? We are a Jesus-loving, Bible-preaching, hands-up, worshiping glory be to God type church. Like, if you come to our church and you're too school for cool, you're too cool for us. Like, we're just at the wrong church. I'm sorry. But I just want to let you know that, that your posture, it, it matters when it comes to your worship. People oftentimes they think, well, it's just too emotional. Listen, your emotions are a gift from God. Like, emotions are a feeling. Emotions are are, are, are an attitude. Now, we have to control our emotions. We don't want to be led by our emotions, but emotions are actually a good thing. And when you get passionate, when you get excited about something, you get emotional about something. Like, when I think about Jesus, I get a little emotional. When I think about being a 20-year-old drug addict, suicidal ideations, in and out of prison, when I think about those days where I had no hope or life to live, and then I think about where I'm at today and the family I have, the little girls that I have, the wife that I have, the church that I have, 
When I think about my status and how he picked me up, turned me around, placed my feet on solid ground, listen, I can't help but worship my God and get a little bit emotional about what Jesus was doing. Some people, I see it every time, about 10, you know, maybe 10, 20% of the church, they'll be worshiping, hands raised up. Some people be kneeling in the altar. Some people get a little shimmy on it while they're worshiping. And the rest of the people are standing like this. You turn graves into gardens. You turn mourning to dancing. You're the only one who can. Now listen, to every guy in the room, if you were to go home to your wife and you were to say, babe, I love you so much. (laughs) Or or they say, hey, uh, do these pants make my, and you go, Come on, you got to have a little enthusiasm about it. Oh, no, baby, right. Listen, if we know that, if we know that emotionalness in our relationship won't build intimacy in our relationship, then what makes us think that emotionalist worship will create anything but an intimate, less relationship? Right? If it doesn't work for your spouse, why don't you try that trick on God? Right? Your posture, it it matters. See, here's what the Bible says. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Why? Because this is your spiritual act of worship. Jesus says it like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. What is strength? That is the body. How does David worship God? It says he danced with all of his might. Right? Because your posture in worship it, it, it matters. The way that we honor and glorify God, the way that we worship God, it matters. And so we want to use our body as we begin to worship him. Let me just say something. Reserved worship is a learned behavior. Right? When you read through the Bible, you're not going to find people with their arms crossed, sitting on their hands, looking blankly at the front of the stage. You're not going to find that. Reserved worship is a learned behavior. People say, but that's just not the culture. That's just not the tradition. That's just not the type of church that I grew up in. Listen, I don't care. Sorry. I, I don't care about your tradition. I, I don't care about the denomination that you grew up in. I, don't, I, don't, I really don't care. Because I will not allow the tradition of man to trump the scriptures and the word of God. And anytime you allow tradition to come before scripture, you're no longer worshiping God, you're worshiping man. Reserved worship is a learned behavior. Someone taught you, you're in church. Somebody taught you that. Somebody taught you to to sit down, stand up, get on your knees, and to recite this prayer. Somebody taught you that. You didn't learn that. Reverential worship is a learned behavior. And anything outside of what the Bible teaches is what we would call unbiblical teaching. So the idea that you're supposed to sit down and you you can't be expressive, you can't raise your hands, that idea, okay, that's just not anywhere in the Bible. So let's just do this. Let's just pretend that we're all new. We've never been to church, and we're all coming to the Bible for the first time. Let's just take our tradition, our preference. Let's just take our experience out of it, and let's read the Bible for the first time, and let's see how God desires to be worshipped. Let me show you. There's nine different ways that we find through this text and through David's life that God says we worship him. The first is this. We worship him through proclaiming. Here's what it says. It says that I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praises shall ever be in my mouth. That is declaring, that is proclaiming the praises, the goodness, and the glory of God. I praise you. I worship you. You are worthy. You are beautiful. You are powerful. You are mighty. I proclaim the goodness of God. Number two, it says shouting. That's what I do all the time. Shouting. You're like, why are you shouting? Psalm 27. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. Now, don't do shouts of anger because that's awkward, right? You're like, ah, that's too much, too much. But shouts of joy, hallelujah, praise Jesus. 
And then it says singing, sing praises to God, sing praises to the king. Bowing down, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is a sign of humility. It's an act of surrender as you bow down before him and honor him. And then you stand back up. May flashes of tremble and fear of you, and I stand in awe of your laws. Psalm 149, 3 says, let them praise his name with what? With dancing. All the Baptists just got nervous. Oh, dancing. It's in the Bible. And make music to him with a tambourine and a harp. Music in Psalm 33, 2, praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him with the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Eight, clapping. Psalm 47, 1. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. And number nine, lifting hands, Psalm 63, 4. And I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will what? Lift up my hands. This is what the Bible prescribes to us as what genuine worship looks like. The posture of our body, it matters when it comes to our worship. Listen, I want to be a church that worships, that is vocal, that is expressive, that is loud. And here's the reason why. Because a loud church is a living church. A quiet church is a dead church. Here's what Satan wants. Satan wants to silence your praise. Satan always wants to silence the children of God. He wants to silence you. He wants to silence your declaration. He wants to silence your voice. He wants to silence your praise. He wants you to take your eyes off of God, and he wants to put them on yourself. God, Satan always wants to silence the people. And what we see is that God wants you to lift up your voice. God wants you to take a stand of praise. God wants you to glorify him because a living church is a loud church, but a dying church that is a quiet church so let's just go ahead and do this redemption I know some of y'all are nervous but I've been preaching now for about 50 minutes and so what I want to do is I don't I want to practice what I preach right I don't want to just be a a hearer of the word like James says I want to be a doer of the word it's not enough for us to know the word we got to obey the word and so if we're talking about David worshiping God and we want to be like David then guess what we got to do we got to worship God right now and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put it all together. And I want you guys, to, I want you guys to, 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 to shout and to sing and to worship and to praise God with me. Everybody, up on your feet. Let's do it together. Praise the Lord. Make a shout to his holy name. God, you are worthy. God, you are glorious. God, we praise you. God, we magnify you. We glorify you in all things. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. You are holy. You are worthy. You are majestic in all of your ways. Amen. Amen. Doesn't it just feel good to do what you were created to do? Oh, it feels good to be. Feels good to worship. You guys may grab a seat. A loud church is a living church. There's a reason you don't go to that church anymore. Welcome to redemption. Number four, there is a paradox in your worship. What is a paradox? Here's here's what a paradox is. Something that doesn't make sense, but once you understand it, you can't imagine how you ever lived without it. G.K. Chesterton says a paradox is truth standing upside down on its head. It doesn't make sense when you see it, but once you understand it, then all of a sudden everything else begins to make sense because of it. I want you to know that, that worship to most people doesn't make sense. Because in most people, they, they see it as, 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 as energy or, or uh, depleting of your energies. You mean like you're, you're worshiping even when you're tired? Like doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Shouldn't you like rest or shouldn't you like, like pull back? I mean, you really go to church on your only day off? I mean, does it make sense for you to stay home and mow your yard, but yet you still get up, you go to church early? You're like, well, I do more than just go to church early. I show up, I serve, I tithe, I give, I worship, I, I, I pray, I, I, I do all sorts of things because that's a priority in my life. Doesn't that mean you're more tired? Actually, no, because when I leave, I feel more filled up, I feel more passionate, I feel more excited. In fact, I just generally all around feel better when I do it. It doesn't make sense because most people see it as a subtraction when God sees it not as an addition but a multiplication in your life. 
That's why when you come to first Wednesday prayer nights, even though it's the middle of the week and your kiddos have homework and you got bedtime, you still come and you feel better on Thursday morning than you did on, on Wednesday afternoon because, because there's a paradox inside of this. Listen, the Bible is filled with all sorts of types of paradox. And here's the paradox we see when it comes to worship is the less you feel it, the more you need it. The less you feel like worshiping, that's when you need to worship him the most. When you're not feeling it, that's when you need it. When you don't want to do it, that's when you need to worship God the most. When you don't feel it, that's when you need it the most. Who needed worship the most in this story? Actually, it wasn't David. It was his wife, Michael. David was having a good day. David had a reason to worship. He is the king, and he's got the Ark of the Covenant. People are surrounding him. It was a good day for David. But Michael, she's the one who looked at him with disgust and with contempt. She was the judgmental one. She was the one who was judging everybody with their hands raised. Look at you worshiping how undignified you are. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know where you've been? Don't you know, what, don't you know what's happened to you? Don't you, know, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who I am? And here's what the Bible says. Because of her barren worship, the rest of her life, she had a barren womb. Barren worship for Michael led to a barren womb. What's the, what's the meaning to this? When you have barren worship, you will live a barren life. You say, but that doesn't make sense. How do I have a barren life if I don't worship God? Because you're, you're worshiping someone or something. If you have a barren life of worship, you will live a barren life for the rest of your life. There, there's a paradox here. One of my favorite Bible verse is this, Mark 4, 24. Jesus says, what the measure you use will be measured unto you. The one who has, more will be given. The one who has not, even what they have will be taken away from them. It's a dangerous word. Because it not only means you get out of it what you put into it, it means that God will multiply whatever you put into it. And you think, well, how much of God do I want? You can have as much of God as you want. You can only have as much as God as you want. You want more? God has more. Right? When you come in here at church on Sunday, you get as much of God as you want. Like, you determine what you receive from God. Do you know that? Like, if you come with expectation, if you come with gratitude, if you come into his courts with thanksgiving in your heart, if you come here believing that every week God is going to do some big things in your life, if you come here ready and willing and, and able to receive a word, apply it to your life, you're never going to walk out of these doors the same way that you came in there because God always multiplies whatever you give to him. But what happens to those who, who don't come ready, who don't come expecting, what happens to those who live a life of barren worship? Do you think they leave the same way they came in? No. They leave with nothing. Because what the measure you use will be measured unto you. David danced before the Lord, and he saw the presence of God. Michael, she didn't worship God, and she lived a barren life for the rest of her life. It's not that you leave here with less, you leave here with nothing. And eventually, if you do that long enough, over time, your heart will become so hard, you will never be able to hear the voice of God speak to you again. There's a paradox. You get out of it what you put into it. You get more out of it what you put into it. But if you put nothing into it, then you will leave with nothing else. There's a warning. There's a paradox. The less you feel like worshiping God. You say, but I just don't feel like worshiping him today. That should be a check engine light on your heart. That you need God the most in those moments. You say, but I just feel so far away from God. That's why you run to him. That's why you worship him. That's why you glorify him. Because when you seek him, you will find him. And he is found by those who diligently seek after him. If you don't feel like worshiping him, that's when you need to worship him the most. And it may not just be on a Sunday morning. It may be on a Monday morning or a Tuesday afternoon or a Wednesday night. It could be on a Thursday. But wherever you get to that moment in your life where you are critical or resentful or you feel distant from God, that should be a sign to you that you need to worship him right now in that moment. The paradox of worship is this. When you, when you don't feel like it, that's when you need to do it the most. Which leads to number five, that there is a, a purpose of your worship. I said at the beginning of the, the message is this. Is the purpose of your life 
is to spend time in the presence of God. That means that if you want to find your way in life, whatever season, whatever situation that you may find yourself in, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're a parent or a grandparent, whether you're in college or whether you're in retirement age, the purpose of your life is to spend time in the presence of God. The way that you love God will change, just like the way changed for David when he was a shepherd boy in the fields versus when he was a king, when he was in the palace versus when he was hiding in the caves, when he was fighting Goliath or when he was dodging spears. The way in which he served God changed, but the reason he served God never changed. His why never changed. Your season of life may change. Your circumstances in life, they may change. The career, the vocation, the children, marital status, whatever it may be, it, it will change. But your why never does. The why of your life will help you discover the way to live your life. And when you find your why, you will find your way. Here's the purpose of worship. Number one, we worship God for who he is. We worship him for who he is. That he is great, he is good, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He saves us, he loves us, he glorifies himself amongst us. We worship him for who he is. Number two, we worship God for what he does. Listen, if God never did anything else in your life, he's already done enough by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. But did you know this? God has done so much more in your life than just that. If that's all he's done, it would be enough. But he's done so much more for us. We worship him for who he is. We worship him for what he does. Number three, we worship him because he commands us to. Worship is more than just an emotion. Worship is also a choice. Worship is more than just a feeling. It's a way that we live out our faith. We worship him because he commands us to. He tells us to. And I said this last week, and when I said it, it looked like some people, like a, like a dog who just heard a whistle. What? We don't worship God because he needs us. It's not like God's in heaven going, if they don't worship me, I'm going to cease being God. No, God is God whether you worship him or not. God doesn't command worship so that way, because he needs it, God commands worship because he knows that we need it. Because if we don't worship him, we will spend the rest of our lives worshiping something else. And God did not create you to worship something or someone. He created you to spend time with him. Number four, we worship him because it honors him. And as we begin to honor God, as we begin to put God first in everything that we do, what does Matthew tell us? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. When we honor God, God begins to bring his favor into our life. Just the same way that as long as the ark of the covenant was in Obed-Edom's house, his household was blessed. As long as the ark was in the presence of Israel, Israel would be blessed. And as long as the presence of God is in your life, you will experience the favor and the blessings of God upon your life as well. And then number five, we worship God because it invites his presence into our life. Do you need God's presence in your life? Do you need God's direction for your life? Do you want to feel close to him? Do you want to experience him in real and full ways? Do you want to just not know God, but do you want to actually experience the life that God has for you? Do you want the Bible to jump off the page and into your heart? Do you want to, whenever you pray, you begin to see answers to your prayers? Do you want to see God's fullness and his goodness and his beauty in your life? Well, here's how you do it. You invite him into your life through worship. And it's how you invite his presence into your life. I'll close with this thought. It comes from the Westminster Catechism. What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? So many people are asking that question. What is the purpose of life? Here's the purpose. The chief end of man is to do what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why God created you. To glorify him and to enjoy his presence 
forever. I told you at the beginning, there's two of the most important days. The first day is the day that you were born. The second day is the day that you found out why. 